knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul started this letter with a lot of doctrinal truths that are so important for us to understand, but as he transitioned to chapters 12 through 16, he then moved into a lot of relationships, and really the Christian life, you know, we need to understand the truth of doctrine, but it's lived out in relationships, our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and so Paul has been challenging us in practical ways and different relationships that we have of how we can live out the doctrine that he's been, you know, sharing with us at the beginning of this letter, and we've had a lot of different challenges. We've looked at nine different relationships so far, and now Paul's going to finish this letter really getting more personal. Uh, He's going to be sharing a personal note about the relationships that he has with some of the Christians that are there in Rome that he's writing to, and also some of the Christians that are there with him in Corinth uh, serving as he's writing this letter from Corinth. And in this chapter, Paul's going to mention 25 people by name who are now uh, believers in the church in Rome that he had encounters with prior to, um, he never has been to Rome yet. So these are people that through his missionary journeys he's had encountered and now they're in Rome and he's going to name eight people who are serving with him in Corinth where he wrote this letter. And I want you to realize that Paul doesn't just list a, a bunch of names of people and say, hey, greet all these people. He shares things about them, you know, important things about their ministry and their values value that they have in ministry. And, you know, Paul, he understood the importance of building relationship with people. He understood the importance and the value of having other believers alongside of him as he sought to minister for the Lord. He didn't do ministry alone. You know, oftentimes people see that as Paul, like, oh, this great missionary went on all these missionary journeys all by himself, but but that's not true. There was always a team that he went with, and there was always support from different churches who supported him through prayer, who supported him financially. But we also have people that we never see in the book of Acts, and we don't really see them, you know, drawn to light, because as Paul went to different places, he hadn't, you know, there was very few hotels, there was very few places to stay, so he would stay in people's homes. And those are the people who looked after him. Those are the people who cooked meals for him. Those are the people who encouraged him. Those are the people who prayed with him. Those are the people who often joined with him in ministry, but we don't know them. We're not told about them. We have this highlight in Acts of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Mark and people like that, but we miss a lot of the the people that aren't named, but yet were just as valuable to what Paul was doing throughout the world on these missionary journeys. And now as we come to this last chapter of Romans, we get to see some of those people. Those names come out. Some of them are highlighted for us of people that as Paul was traveling around doing ministry, these were people that labored with him. These were people that he valued. These were people that he saw as important to what the Lord was doing in the world at that time. 
So here in Romans 16, Paul's going to mention 25 people that he did ministry with or did ministry to. And it's great because most of these people, except for two of them, are people we've never heard about before. We don't know them except from this chapter, and we're going to get to see that Paul was a relationship-focused individual. He had a lot of loving relationships with people. And you know, we're going to see some important value in that of realizing you know, in the Christian life, not only in ministry, but just in life in general, we need to have loving relationships with other believers. William Newell wrote this about Romans chapter 16. The 16th chapter is neglected by many to their own loss. It is by far the most extensive, intimate, and particular of all the words of loving greetings in Paul's marvelous letters. No one can afford to miss this wonderful outpouring of the heart of our apostle towards the saints whom he loved. You know, a lot of people come to Romans chapter 16 and they approach it like they would a genealogy. When you come to a genealogy, a lot of people just say, we're just skipping this. It's just a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. I don't see any purpose or value for my own life. And so I just kind of move past it. And sadly, people approach Romans 16 in the same way because there's a lot of big, hard to pronounce names. And they kind of think, well, it's just kind of like a genealogy. He's just greeting a bunch of people. Let's, let's just end the book. All right. It was nice. The, the first 15 chapters were great. And now this one kind of just, you know, is the, the final fair well, but you know, we miss so much as William Newell says, when you do that, it's to your own loss because it's not just a bunch of names that Paul lists here. He shares specific things about these people. <clears throat> he, he brings out the reality of the importance of relationships and it reveals many things about Paul. It reveals many things about his view of people. So we're going to learn a lot of practical things. But this chapter is not just about the greetings and these people and, and the relationship they have with Paul. That's just the first 16 verses. Uh, from chapter uh, verses 17 through 20, Paul's going to give an important warning. And a warning about how to deal with divisive people in the church. In verses 20 through 21, Paul's going to share the greetings from those who are serving with him in Corinth. And then in verses 25 through 27, Paul's going to give us a final encouragement, one that reminds us of all the things that he's been leading up to. This is an important way to leave and end this letter. So chapter 16 is definitely not just some final greeting. It's a chapter full of a lot of things that we can apply and learn from. We're going to start by looking at the encouraging things that Paul says about believers in Rome that he personally knew and writes specific things about them. And then when we look at these people, we're going to highlight some things that it reveals to us about Paul and his ministry. So let's start with the first person that Paul speaks about in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says this, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the, of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So the first person that Paul mentions here in this chapter is a woman by the name of Phoebe. And Paul refers to her as our sister, meaning that she is a sister in Christ. And he also refers to her as a servant of the church there in Centria, and that she has been a helper to many people, including Paul. And something interesting to note is that this name Phoebe is the feminine form uh, of the name given to the Greek god Apollo. Uh, and so Phoebe's parents were most likely idol worshippers. 
Uh, it's a Greek name. They probably grew up there. The Greeks had a lot of idols and you know gods that they worshipped. And she most likely ra- was raised in a home that they would give that name to you. Hey, we're going to name you after the god Apollos because we worship Apollos and this sounds like a good thing to us. And so she most likely grew up in that. And m- most likely herself as you know, a younger woman, maybe even uh, older woman, was someone who was an idol worshiper before she finally came to know the truth of who Jesus is and that he's the one true God and became a Christian and started following him. But since she became a Christian, we're told that, you know, this great change happened. She's now this great servant in the church that she uh, was a part of there in Centria. And Paul tells us that she is a helper of many people, including herself. And notice that Paul does something here, which is quite fascinating when you look at it. It says, Paul commends Phoebe to the church in Rome, and then he asked the church in Rome to receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and to assist her in whatever business that she needs from them. And the reason that this is important to note is because at that time, if you were going to send a believer from one place to another, from one church to another, you would usually write a letter of commendation, a letter that tells that, hey, this is a genuine believer. This is one who's serving here in our church, and they're coming maybe to live where you are, and we highly recommend them. We recommend that you receive them. We recommend that you you know utilize their gifts. You would write this letter of commendation for them so that the church would know that that's the truth about this person because sadly at that time just like today you had people realizing the church is full of generous people and if we come in there and we say hey you know what I'm doing this ministry in another country or in another city and I need your support financially I need your help could you house me or could you feed me or could you give me this money to to do the work of God here but yet you're not doing anything You're just a scam artist. You're just coming there claiming these things to try to take advantage of the church at that time. And that was happening. And so they decided, you know what? I can't get on the phone and call the other church in the other city or the other country and say, you know what? Do you know so-and-so? Do they really attend there? Are they really godly? Are they really doing this ministry? There wasn't that ability. And so they decided, you know what? Let's just start sending people with letters of commendation. And so when they show up, The other people will know, yes, this is a genuine believer who has this ministry and is doing this thing. Now, the reason this is important to note is because notice that the commendation of Phoebe is in this actual letter to the Romans. Paul didn't write a separate letter of commendation. Why? Why wouldn't he write a separate letter of commendation? Why would this do her any good? It would only do her any good if Paul asked her to deliver this letter to the Romans. That was her letter of commendation. She was actually taking this letter that he wrote and delivering it to the church in Rome. And so when they read it, they could say, oh, at the end, yes, here's the commendation of this woman who has brought this letter to us. Now, this is quite significant that Paul is asking this woman to take on this huge responsibility and this huge blessing. Now, the church that Phoebe was from is called Centria. It's in uh, a city there in Corinth, and that's where Paul is writing this letter. So it makes plenty of sense that she's there, and now he says, hey, I need you to take this and travel all the way to Rome and deliver this. Now, if this letter was lost, if this letter was stolen, there's none other. There's no copy machines. You know, he didn't put it on his hard drive. This was handwritten, and when it's gone, it's gone until someone actually would hand 
copy it. And so there were many traveling dangers, especially for women going from Corinth to Rome. And what she has in her hands is one of the most significant and important letters in all of the Bible. Dr. Barnhouse wrote this about Phoebe. Never was there a greater burden carried by such tender hands. The theological history of the church through the centuries was in the manuscript which she brought with her. The Reformation was in that baggage. The blessings of multitudes in our day was carried in those parchments. Paul trusted this woman, Phoebe, to take such a valuable and important letter and travel a very dangerous journey to deliver it to this church in Rome. It reveals that Phoebe must have been a very remarkable, reliable, and trustworthy woman. For for Paul to entrust this to her, but also reveal something about Paul. That his trust, his value, his view of this woman, that he saw her as able, that he saw her as capable of doing this. Paul didn't say, hey, you're a woman, you can't handle this. He didn't say, hey, you're a woman, you belong in the kitchen, I'll find a man to do this. He said, no, you're one who can take care of this. You're one that I'm going to entrust this to. You're one that I'm going to give this to, to bless the church there in Rome. He saw her as a trustworthy servant of Jesus Christ who was faithful enough to be entrusted with this very important letter. William Barclay said this, The statement says as much about Paul as it does about Phoebe. The esteemed apostle readily and graciously acknowledged his personal indebtedness to and love for a Christian sister whom he memorialized in these two verses in the Word of God. And although God inspired no woman to write a part of Scripture, he used Phoebe to transport the first copy of this marvelous letter, which is one of the bedrocks of the New Testament theology. This woman was emblematic of those countless women of God whom he has used and honored with great distinction within the framework of his divine plan. You know, women like Phoebe are so important in the body of Christ, and I'm very grateful that we have many women like that here in our fellowship, women that are servants, that are trustworthy, that God is using in great ways. Let's see what next people Paul mentions, verses 3 through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The next group that Paul mentions here is a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Paul says they're his fellow workers in Christ, but he also says they, they risked their own necks, that they were willing to die for Paul's sake to whom not only he gives thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, this is the the, the two people in this list that we've actually heard about. Uh, If you go to Acts chapter 18, you get the story of how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, and they're both tent makers. Paul was a tent maker, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, and so they just kind of naturally joined together because they have the same profession, and Paul shares the gospel with them, and they get saved. And so that's how their relationship starts. And then all of a sudden, they continue to minister with Paul and help Paul. And during this time that Paul is ministering with them, there's a lot of people trying to kill them. And they risk their lives for Paul's sake to try to help him escape those who were trying to do this and reveals the great love that they had for Paul. Jesus said in John 15, 13, 
Greater love has no one than this than to lay down your life for one's friends. You know, Priscilla and Aquila demonstrated this kind of love by laying down, or at least willing to, die for Paul. I love you enough, Paul, that, that I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to sacrifice my life so that you may live. What a great example to us of the kind of love that God wants us to demonstrate to other believers, that we would love them enough that we'd be willing to sacrifice our own life for them. David Egner wrote this about Aquila and Priscilla. Before I entered the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, I had to walk down a boulevard called the Avenue of the Righteous Gentiles. It's lined with hundreds of trees planted in honor of people who sheltered or in other ways assisted Jews during the Nazi regime. At the base of each tree is a metal plaque bearing the name of a man, woman, or family who risked their lives to help Jews during the Holocaust. Some of the names are familiar like Corey Ten Boom and Oscar Schindler, but most are not. As I walked down this avenue of memorial, my thoughts went to Romans chapter 16, where Paul said that Priscilla and Aquila had risked their lives for his sake. Then I thank God for devoted believers in Jesus Christ down through the centuries who made tremendous sacrifices, some losing loved ones or their own lives to meet the physical and spiritual needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Priscilla and Aquila were a huge blessing to Paul because they loved him enough to say, you know what, our lives, we're willing to sacrifice them for you. And I love what this gentleman shares because you know what, there's so many believers like that through the centuries who have done that and it's helped the spread of the gospel, it's helped deepen relationships of love and just has blessed people immensely. But notice Paul also says, greet the church that's in their house. You know, when Christianity first started, all churches met in people's homes. They didn't have church buildings and things of that nature. People met in homes, but the only way that that happened was that people were willing to open their home for believers to come and gather there for a meeting. And we see that Priscilla and Aquila, after they get saved, not only do they love Paul enough to say, you know what, I'm willing to die for you, they also say, Lord, we want to be used. We're tent makers, but we're happy to open up our home. We're happy to be used for your glory, for the body of Christ to come and meet in our home. And I think it's important to realize most of the people on this list, but definitely Aquila and Priscilla, they're not you know, full-time ministers. They're not you know, missionaries like Paul or church planners or apostles. They're tent makers. They have a regular nine to five. They just got a normal job and they're serving in their community. They're living for Jesus, going to their church, working their job. And yet God's able to use them in great ways because they love deeply and they say, Lord, my resources are yours. My house is available to you. I want to use what I have for your glory. And God was able to do great things through them. If you have a deep love for other believers and you're willing to allow God to use your resources, you don't have to be in some full-time ministry position for God to use you. He can do great things like he did with this couple. Next, Paul says, Greet my beloved Apantius, who is the first fruit of Achaia to Christ. Achaia is a region that the city of Corinth was in, and Paul says that Apantius is the first fruits of that region, meaning he's the first guy who got saved. So as Paul goes into that area, he meets this gentleman, and we don't know of this guy besides Romans 16, we're not told of him in Acts, but Paul's telling us now, when he comes into this area, here's the first person 
who accepted the gospel. He's part of that first fruits that Paul received as he went there and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. And notice how he refers to this man. He says, Apantius, my beloved. He was beloved by Paul. Notice that Paul doesn't just remember the name of his first convert. He had a heart for this man. He had a love for this man. It wasn't like, okay, here's another spiritual notch on my belt, and and, uh, I'm just going to preach the gospel. Good, you accepted it. Great. Now I'm going to the next one, and you've accepted it. Good. And now I'm going to the next one. No, Paul remembered these people. He loved these people. When he ministered to them, he didn't just forget, and when he moved on to another place, they were still in his heart. They were still people that he wanted to keep relationships with and had deep love for. And I think that's a great example to us that we realize that ministry is about people. It's not about how many people can I see come to Jesus or how many people can I see this or that. No, that we would have a true, deep love for them. Verse 6, the next person Paul says to greet is, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Now, there are many Marys in the Bible. Even if you read the New Testament, you might get confused as to which Mary uh, is being referenced. And so we don't have any clue of which Mary this is uh, because we don't have any more information. But we know something about this Mary. Whoever this woman is, Paul tells us that, you know what, she labored much for Paul and for the people who were with him. That's what we know about her. Here's a woman who labored much for these people serving the Lord. And this word translated labor means to grow weary, tired, exhausted, to labor with wearisome effort, to toil. So this woman, Mary, was willing to just give this wearisome effort. She toiled, she gave it her all to invest in and labor for and minister to Paul and those that were there with him in some missionary journey that he had an encounter with Mary on. And she's a great example to us. And, and I love this reality because Paul was journeying. And we don't hear, and we need to remember, you know, Acts is just like a small snippet of what was going on at that time. We just have a little bit about what Paul, we're not having an exhaustive list of Paul's daily life and all that he did. We just kind of get highlights of things. But that's just one man. I mean, there were all the other apostles, there were all these other people, there was other church planners, there was other people like Mary, where Paul's going out, and he comes to this place, and he's preaching the gospel, and someone like this comes alongside, and he, she labors, she, you know, she goes and gives it her all to make sure that he's blessed, and he can continue doing what he's called to do, and she's ministering to him and the other people with him. And without people like this, it wouldn't be possible. And I think this is something we lose as we read Acts and we just think, man, I'm not called to be, you know, this church planting missionary like Paul. And so maybe I just don't have much value. And we miss that there's so many other people who are a part of what God was doing. And the body of Christ has so many different roles and functions. And we need the Marys, the people who are willing to just labor and give their all in service to the Lord and service to others. Verse 7 says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So Paul tells us these two people, Andronicus and Junia, are his countrymen, which means that these men are Jewish, but also their fellow prisoners. So they understood what it was like that they meet Paul most likely in prison. But we're also told that they were well known by the apostles. Uh, and so these guys are, are mature spiritual people. And 
He says they were in Christ before me, meaning that they got saved before Paul did. So they got saved in the first couple years of the church, the early church starting. And so these are are seasoned, mature men of God. And they're most likely because of that in prison for the same reason that Paul was preaching the gospel because their faith in Christ. And so that's how they have this encounter. They're in prison together and this happening. But once again, I mean, we don't hear of these people in Acts and yet they got saved before Paul did. They're obviously serving the Lord. They're in prison for that, and they're encountering Paul there, and yet now we see there's so many people that the Lord was using. And I love the fact that, you know, even in prison, Paul had some other people, mature, godly people, people who have been saved longer than him, who were there, that could encourage him, that could help him, that they could help each other, minister one to another. Verse 8 says this, Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Amplius was a common Roman name that was given to slaves, so he was most likely a Roman slave. And Paul just says one thing. He's my beloved in the Lord. This Greek word translated beloved means greatly esteemed, dear, favorite, deeply loved. That's what Paul, that's what Amplius was to Paul. I, I deeply love this guy. I have a relationship of love. He he means so much to me. You know, the meaning of this word beloved is so wonderful and how great it would be if we could honestly refer to one another in this way. Not just to say, hey, so-and-so is my beloved and not mean it, but actually be sincere in that, that I truly do have an esteemed, deep, dear love for you. And what change that would make in the body of Christ if we each had that view of one another. We each saw each other in that way. William Newell said this about Paul, how wonderfully does his, does the heart of this apostle retain personal names and maintain special love? Let us be encouraged to do likewise. Yeah, I think this is impressive about Paul. He's been all these different places, meets all these different people, has been able to minister with and minister to, yet he remembers them, not just their name, but he has this deep love for them still. These relationships have value to them. It means something to him. You know, when you think of the believers that God has brought into your life over the years, the one has blessed you. Do you remember their names? Do you remember those things about them that the Lord used in them to bless you and encourage you? Do you have feelings of love for them as Paul did? Verse 9, he says, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statues, my beloved. Urbanus is a a Roman name, so most likely he is a Roman citizen, and Statues, that's a Greek name. And he says, Urbanus is his fellow worker in Christ. You know, doing the work of Christ is a difficult task. And it's so important to have fellow workers. When you're trying to do something on your own, it's so much harder. When you have other people coming alongside of you, ministering with you, working with you, doing it with you, the task becomes much more doable, much easier. You know, many hands make light work. There's this reality of more people working together, the more you can accomplish for the Lord. And once again, I want to highlight you know, this misconception that Paul kind of just did his own thing. Man, there were so many people that Paul depended on, that came alongside of him, that served with him, that were fellow workers to him, that we don't see told to us in the book of Acts. 
And so we think, well, we only kind of see Barnabas and Silas, those are the only people. No, there were many, many people that were fellow workers that enabled these missionary journeys that Paul went on to be successful because so many people were willing to get involved in the work which made what they were able to accomplish so much more. Paul says of Statues that he is my beloved once again. We see another reference of Paul's love relationships with another person. He had a lot of love for a lot of people, which is a great example for us. Verse 10, Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. So the next person that Paul says to greet is Apelles. And notice what he, he says of this man. He says, approved in Christ. The Greek word translated approved means accepted, pleasing, and proven. It was a word to describe someone who did their work well. When you did your work well, then you were approved. It was something, I approve of that. It was done so well. Apelles was approved in Christ. So whatever ministry he had, we don't know what it is. Ultimately, it was well done unto the Lord. You know, I hope that all of us as believers, when we die and we stand before Jesus, we want to hear something. We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, this gentleman here, Paul is saying, that's what's going to happen for him. In this life, he lived in such a way that when he stands before the Lord, he's going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, because he was approved in Christ. It's the only thing we know about this man. The only thing we hear in Scripture. What a great thing. If that's the only thing people knew about you, hey, you're approved in Christ. You lived well according to what the Lord would want. I mean, if that was the thing that was put on your tombstone, I mean, that would still be good. What, what a wonderful thing. If that's all people knew about you, this is a great thing to be known for, that you did what Christ called you to do well. Paul also says, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. So instead of listing everybody in the household, he just says, greet them all. I love them all. I want you to greet all of those who live in that house. Verse 11 Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Herodian was Paul's countryman, once again, revealing that he was a Jewish man. And we see another greeting of a whole house, Narcissus. Um, Narcissus is a Roman name, and many scholars believe that he was the secretary to Emperor Claudius. Uh, because there's a man who was a secretary who had that name, uh, and there's different evidence to kind of support that. We don't know for sure, but it's, you know, that'd be a fascinating thing of someone who had that kind of role and power in the Roman government, who was also a believer in Christ and hopefully had influence over the emperor and over other people who uh, needed uh, someone who was a believer to be there. Verse 12 says, Greet Tryphena, Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Tryphena, Tryphosis, and Persis, these are all women. These are three women. And, and Paul speaks of their labor or much labor in the Lord. 
These three women put in a lot of difficult service for the Lord. And once again, Paul recognized that. Hey, these ladies, that they've served the Lord well. They put in much labor for him. And I want to recognize that. I want you to greet them for me. I appreciate them. I appreciate their service to Jesus. Verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus, Paul says, is chosen in the Lord. Rufus is an African name. And something that's quite interesting is it's very possible that Rufus is the son of Simon the Cyrene. If you remember, Simon the Cyrene is the one that is Jesus is carrying the cross and he can't carry it anymore. And the Romans just grab this guy out of the crowd and make him carry Jesus's cross. That was Simon the Cyrene. And Mark's gospel says he has a son whose name is Alexander and another son whose name is Rufus. And so many believe that this Rufus is the same one here, that as this man carried Jesus' cross, was influenced and impacted and ultimately became a follower of Christ, and then his son did as well. Uh, And so that's an interesting thought. We don't have enough to prove that. But we're told a wonderful description of Rufus. He is chosen in the Lord. You know, as you read through the Old Testament, you see the Jews had that wonderful privileged title of God's chosen nation, God's chosen people. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and I, because he sacrificed himself for our sins, now Gentiles as well can be part of that chosen group, that we can be chosen in the Lord, in Christ, because we've placed our faith in him. It's such a a wonderful title, a wonderful reality that God would choose us. And what a blessing for this African man, so separated from the nation of Israel, yet to have this wonderful title in us as well to be chosen in the Lord. Now, Paul doesn't just mention Rufus, he also mentions Rufus's mother. And notice he says, his mother and mine. Now, Paul's not saying that, hey, Rufus and I, this African gentleman and myself who is Jewish, are biological brothers and we have the same mother. No, he's ultimately bringing up the reality that the mother of Rufus was like my own. She treated me like her own son. I view her as like my own mom. Now, here's another thing that the Bible doesn't reveal to us. We're not told anything about Paul's parents. But it's highly likely, considering the way that Paul was before he became a Christian, how anti-Christian he was, how very Jewish and religious he was, who despised you know, Christianity, that when he converted from Judaism to Christianity, that they most likely had nothing to do with him any longer. And that's possibly why we see nothing of them in Scripture at all, because we see so much of him. But you know what? Even if that's the reality, that they disowned him, that they wanted nothing to do with him because he became a Christian, we see something that is unique in the body of Christ, something that is wonderful in the body of Christ, that even though you might lose family for following Christ, you also gain family in the body of Christ because you've chosen to follow Christ. And Paul sees this, hey, maybe I did lose my mom, but I got another one. Man, Rufus's mother treats me like her own. I see her like my mom. Jesus tells us something that we need to remember if that's our situation in Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. 
Now, many of you have been rejected by family, by friends, by others, because you have placed your faith in Christ, and they don't want anything to do with you now because of the fact that you're a Christian. Paul encountered that. Many believers have encountered that. And Jesus says, you know what? Even if that's you, if you've done it for my sake, and you've lost family, you've lost friends, you've lost lands, hey, I'm going to reward you. You're going to get a hundredfold. You're going to get so much more out of this. So don't just focus on what you've lost. Focus on the reality of, of what you've gained in Christ. And also that now you have the body of Christ. You have brothers and sisters that the Lord brings alongside of you. A new family that he blesses you with. Verses 14 through 16 says this. Greet Asyncritus, Philegon, Hermas, Petrabas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philogus and Julia, Nerus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So here Paul lists nine more names of individuals that he had an encounter with at some point in time in his ministry that are now living in Rome and going to the church there in Rome. And he wants those people to be greeted and all the brethren who are with him. And I'm sure he could have listed many more names and he could have given more details, but even the amount that he did is quite impressive. And he encourages them to greet one another with a holy Kiss. And this was a common greeting in Paul's day. It was a greeting that demonstrated love. And if you read through church history, that was one of the things that the world, when they looked at the church, was kind of taken back by of how much they love one another. Remember, Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, the world's going to know you're my disciples. Why? By your love for one another. In the early church, they were known for that. And one of the things that was seen was just the affection that they showed one another. And this wasn't a romantic kiss. This was just a kiss of, of you know, greeting, a kiss on the cheek, a demonstration of love. You know, we don't really do that as much in our culture. And so if you try to put this in the practice, you know, you go to give a, you know, a kiss of love, you might get a punch of love. But, you know, the reality is Paul's encouraging you, hey, show some kind of loving affection. If that's a hug, if that's a handshake or however that is in the culture that you live in, He's encouraging them, demonstrate love to other believers. Because you know what? As he writes all this, one of the things we see from him is he had a loving relationship with these people. He valued that. And he's encouraging them, hey, you demonstrate, greet one another in a way that shows them love because I really love them and I want that to happen for them. Now, as we've looked at this list, I want to take a moment just to highlight Five things very quickly that we see about Paul and about his ministry in this. And I think some things that maybe shine a different type of light on Paul that often isn't shown on him. And the first one I think is probably the most, you know, well, I'll just say, uh, Paul's view of women in ministry. I want you to note eight women here that he speaks so highly of that he shows very much a, a value for the woman that he chooses to actually bring this letter all the way to Rome. Um, he demonstrates that, you know, he really values women in ministry. And he's gotten a bad rap for being a chauvinist, for being anti-women. And he got that because of the roles that he has written in letters that he wrote for women in the church and women in the home. And then people just say, well, Paul, you're a chauvinist because you would say that, forgetting the reality that actually every author of the Bible is inspired by God. So they ultimately are saying God 
you're a chauvinist God, you're anti-women, which he definitely is not. There are certain roles that God has placed different from men and women, and Paul clarifies those inspired by the Spirit of God, and so he's not that. And people will think, well, Paul's just kind of anti-women, anti-women in ministry. And I love this chapter because it reveals, hey, no, he values women. He valued women in ministry. He appreciated the labor. He appreciated the trustworthiness. He chose a woman, not a man, to take this vital letter to Rome. You know, here's a guy who realizes the worth of women. And I think it's important to see that demonstrated here in these greetings, because I think too often we see something else that I don't think is an accurate uh, reality of him. The second thing I want you to note is that Paul praises the common Christian. You know, most of the people that Paul writes to are not full-time. Actually, no one on this list is a full-time ministry, is a full-time pastor, a full-time church planner, apostle, you know, missionary. They're none of those things. They're just everyday people who live in a community, who have a job, who go to church, who live for Christ at their work, who live for Christ in their community, who live for Christ in their home, who live for Christ in their church. And Paul is just writing about their faithful service to the Lord. And I think this is an important thing for us to recognize and highlight because too often we just focus on those who are full-time like Paul and miss so many others who are doing just as much important work for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, They were like the most of us, commonplace individuals, but they loved the Lord, and therefore, as Paul um, recollected their names, he sent them a message of love which has become embalmed in the Holy Scriptures. Do not let us think of the distinguished Christians exclusively so as to forget the rank and file of the Lord's army. Do not let the eye rest exclusively upon the front rank, but let us love all whom Christ loves. Let us value all Christ's servants. I love the fact that Paul is doing this. And unfortunately, in the body of Christ, it's our natural tendency. We like to give honor. We like to, you know, encourage. We like to point out people like myself who are in full-time ministry, who are in pastor or missionary or whatever. And it's like, oh, you know, let's give honor to them. We'll look at what they're doing for the Lord. Isn't that so great? And it's nice. You know, the Bible speaks of giving honor to people in that role, but we should also give honor to every other person who's living for Jesus just in a different way and just as important because you're going to reach people in your work that I'm never going to speak to. You're going to reach people in your family. You're going to reach people for the Lord. And Paul is recording, hey, these are people that labor. These are people that serve. These are people that are valuable, that did great things for the Lord. And I want to encourage them and I want to highlight what they've done and share the reality that even those that aren't in the full-time ministry type of role are just as important for the work of God to be done. And I think it's important for us to realize, hey, everybody needs honor. Everybody needs encouragement. And so, you know, let's take time as Paul did. Just, hey, I want to find something in your life and just encourage you with what the Lord's doing that's so evident and clear and speak that to you so that you'll be blessed by him. The third thing I want you to take note is the diversity in the people that Paul greeted and that Paul praised for their service to the Lord. He praised Jews and Gentiles. He praised men and women. He praised those who were slaves those who were free, and it reveals a wonderful truth that he actually writes of in Galatians 3.28, which says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. 
It's just such a wonderful reality of the fact that we come to Jesus from the same place. We're all just rotten sinners. Romans has made that very clear. And once we come into the body of Christ, there's an equality. We're one. So the differences that might have been beforehand, maybe you know the, the society that we lived in might value men over women or the other way around or rich or poor or, or you know Jew versus Gentile, Paul saying all that stuff is done. We're all now one. We're all equal. We're all of the same value in Christ. And I love the fact that we see this diversity. He's showing, hey, look at this woman who's done this work. Look at this Gentile man. Look at this Jewish man. You know, look at this slave. Look at this free person. All of them are serving Jesus. All of them are, are able to be used by God. He didn't just say, well, you know, me and my fellow Jewish guys, man, we're out here doing all the ministry and everybody else, they just, no, don't do much. No, he saw and recognized anyone who puts their faith in Christ can be used in a great way. The fourth thing I want you to note is that Paul took time to encourage these people and something specific about them. You know, Paul could have just said, greet, blah, 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 and just listed all these names and that could have been it. But he chooses to say, you know what, I want to pick something specific in your life that I saw as you and I had our paths crossed and we ministered together or I ministered to you. And I want to just highlight that so as you get this greeting that there's something more than just your name. He gave that specific encouragement to specific people. You know, Paul's generous in paying compliments. And it's sincere and it's encouraging. And I think this is a great example for us to get into the habit of being, you know what, I think we're, we, we have a tendency of being able to see the things that are wrong in people and to highlight that and to point that out. And you got this problem and this issue. And yeah, we all do have those. But oftentimes we struggle with seeing the good things and coming alongside and encouraging people with, hey, look at what this is going on. And that's such a blessing. And, and you're so great at this. And I was so blessed that you did that. And, and just bringing words of encouragement. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Imagine if we all put this verse into practice. No corrupt word coming out of our mouth. The only thing that we spoke was something to encourage, something that brought grace to those who were listening. Imagine the difference in the body of Christ versus the world. Imagine if we put this into practice on social media. Imagine we put this in practice in our relationships. The change that would be such a blessing to all who listened. There was a poem written titled, Say It Now. And the challenge of the poem is to Speak these words of encouragement now before it's too late. It says this. I would rather have a little rose from the garden of a friend than to have the choicest flowers when my stay on earth must end. I would rather have a pleasant word and kindness said to me than flattery when my heart is still and life has ceased to be. I would rather have a loving smile from friends I know are true, than tears shed round my caskets when to this world I bid adieu. Bring me all your flowers today, whether pink or white or red. I'd rather have one blossom now than a truckload when I'm dead. You know, recalling the good qualities of people at their funeral and saying nice things about them is a great thing to do, but how much better to do it while they're still alive? How much better to do it when they can actually hear? How much better to say, you know what? Yeah, when you're dead, I'd love to be someone who would speak at your funeral and share things with you, but I want to do that too right now. 
I want to be that person who speaks words of encouragement now. And for some of you, you have estranged relationships and you haven't spoken maybe to people for a while. And the sad reality is when you have to speak at a funeral and you think, man, I wish I would have said this when they were alive. I wish I would have just taken the time to share love, to say these things when I had a chance for them to hear it as opposed to now when they're dead in this casket. And so I encourage you, as Paul did, take time to encourage people. Not just people like myself who are in full-time ministry, but just look around and see what people are doing for Jesus and encourage them in that. The fifth thing I want you to note is that Paul was a man who valued relationships. He put a lot of effort into starting relationships. He put a lot of effort in continuing relationships. And he depended upon those relationships in the ministry he was called to. Warren Wearsby wrote this about Paul. Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. He did not try to live an isolated life. He had friends in the Lord and he appreciated them. They were a help to him personally and to his ministry. In my own reading of Christian biography, I have discovered that the servants whom God has used the most were people who could make friends. They multiplied themselves in the lives of their friends and associates in the ministry. While there may be a place for the secluded saint who lives alone with God, it is my conviction that most of us need each other. We are sheep, and sheep flock together. You know, we often see Paul, the the great missionary, the great soul winner, But I love what Warren Wiersbe says here. He was also a wonderful friend maker. He valued and invested in relationships. Paul was a man whose heart was full of people. When he remembered them, he remembered them with love. He remembered what they did for the Lord. He kept that close to him and he wanted to encourage them. And that's something that we should be willing to do as well. So now that Paul has shared these greetings and and these specific things about these people's lives, he's going to now give a warning, his final warning in this letter to these Roman believers here in verses 17 through 20. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul just got done sharing about many wonderful people in the church, people that he labored with, people that he valued, people who did wonderful things for the Lord, people that he trusted. But unfortunately, not everyone in the church is like that. Not everyone is that person that is valuable and trustworthy and and is there for our blessing and our good. Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, in the church world that we live in, there are people that we need to watch out for. And so Paul warns them, he warns us about people that would cause divisions, the people that would cause offenses contrary to the Bible. Divisions is speaking, which we would think it was, those who would seek to divide. And this word offenses is speaking of those who would seek to deceive people from the truth of God's word. And so Paul says, hey, beware of these people. They're also those who 
They don't serve Jesus. They just serve their own belly. Speaking of their own fleshly desires, that's all they're out for. And they speak with these smooth words and flattering speech to what? Deceive the hearts of the simple. You know, sadly, there are many people in the church world today who are, this is them. They're seeking to divide. They're seeking to deceive. And they use this flattery speech and, and they come about and they sound and they're charismatic and, but they use this stuff to try to get people to go away from what the truth of the Word of God speaks. And so Paul says, hey, you need to be aware of these people. There's a warning that these types of people exist. They did then, and they also do now. And Paul shares three things that we should do in this warning. Okay, they exist, and now here's how you should deal with the reality that they exist. First, Paul tells us, note those who cause divisions and offenses. The Greek word note here means to fix one's eyes upon to observe, to take heed of, to mark something. So we need to take note of these people. We need to be aware of them. Those who are causing divisions, those who are bringing deception, those who are kind of bringing people away from God's word, we need to note who they are. We need to be aware of who they are. We need to have our eyes, okay, that's the kind of person that we have to be cautious of, aware of. They're the ones who are doing what the word of God says they shouldn't. And once we note them, the second thing that Paul tells us to do is Avoid them. So once you're aware of who they are, now you know who to avoid, to turn away from their unbiblical teaching, to stay away from those who would try to lead us astray. Avoid those who are trying to do that. The third thing Paul tells us to do is be wise in what is good and simple concerning what is evil. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is it's a far greater value to know what is good than to spend your time trying to focus on knowing what is evil. To spend your time focusing on knowing what is genuine instead of investing all your time focusing on what is counterfeit. You know, there's a lot of cults. I'm sure many come to your door. There's a lot of false teachers. There's a lot of people who would seek to deceive and lead us from the truths of Scripture. And there's two different thoughts that people have. Well, if I'm not going to be deceived, then I need to read up on all these cults. I need to read up on every possible heresy, every possible false teacher out there so I can be aware of what they're saying so I won't be deceived. Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not the manner in which you should go about it. Invest in knowing God's word. Spend time in it every single day because the more you spend knowing what is genuine, the more you will be aware of what is counterfeit. All of a sudden, it'll be really obvious if you know the Word of God, when they say something contrary to it, you don't have to say, you know what, I studied that book on cults, and that's exactly what it said. No, you'll say, I studied the Word of God, and this is opposite of what the Word of God says, and so I'm aware that this is wrong, that this is deceptive, and that this is something that is not good for me. And so Paul's challenge is, hey, know what is good. Spend your time investing in the Word, and then you'll be able to see what is evil. And that's a good challenge for all of us to make sure we spend plenty of time in the Word of God because we are in a time where there's a lot of deception in our culture, even in the church world. And if we don't know the truth, we don't know the Word of God well, then we can be deceived into buying into things that God does not want us to. So Paul says to do these things, and then he gives an encouragement The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. This is a good reminder for us because the reality is we're in a spiritual battle. 
Satan is trying to destroy us. But you know what? If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, there's a wonderful prophecy. Satan is caught. Eve is caught. Adam's caught. They've all sinned. And there's a punishment for each one. And in Satan's punishment, God tells him, hey, you know what? You're going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, speaking of the Messiah, but he is going to crush your head. And we see the bruise of the heel, speaking of Jesus. Yeah, he was crucified. And Satan might have thought, I got victory, but no, ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross for our sin was the ultimate death sentence for Satan. And Jesus is going to crush his head and obliterate and destroy him. And here's a reminder of that reality, of that prophecy back in Genesis 3. Paul's saying, hey, remember what's going to happen. Satan's days are numbered. His time is coming. He's going to be crushed. But you continue to live for Jesus and remember what's going to happen to him. And remember who's on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't be worried about Satan when you have the Lord with you. Just trust in him and know that you can overcome all the things that he might try to bring against you. So Paul started this chapter greeting the believers in Rome, but now he also wants to say, hey, the guys with me, they want to greet you as well. And so the people there in Corinth have some greetings. Verse 21 through 24 Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. Tertullius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greet you. And Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So here we have the greetings of those who are with Paul there in Corinth and He starts with his countrymen, which are his fellow Jews, and he starts with the one that was serving with him the most, Timothy. You know, he writes some letters even specifically to Timothy. They had a very deep relationship, did a lot of ministry together. But there were other countrymen who were Jewish serving with Paul there in Corinth. Lucius, Jason, uh, Sosipater were also there. And then we're told, notice it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, for those who are thinking right now, wait a second, I thought Paul wrote this epistle. Why is it saying I, this guy who wrote it? Well, Paul's way of writing, as to most people back then as well, was he would dictate the letter to someone else who would record what he said. And so this is the man who literally wrote because he recorded what Paul told him to record. And you'll see in some of Paul's letters where Paul specifically says, like, basically, I have taken the pen and have written these these final words here because it was typical that he would dictate it to someone else. And that was very common in that time. And people who uh, were very good at not just um, writing, but writing clearly and well to get that because, you know, we're not having type and word and, you know, uh, correct and all this stuff. You better have someone who has great penmanship, someone who knows how to write on parchment paper that's going to last. And so, you know, there are people that was their profession and this is one of the guys. And so Paul wrote the letter in the sense of the Spirit of God as the one who gave him the words to dictate to this gentleman who literally penned them down. Um, and so that's what this man did, which is a wonderful thing because now we have record of it today. Paul also mentions Gaius, his host, and the host of the whole church. And just like Ananias and Sapphira, here's a man who says, you know what, I'm willing to host things. You know, he hosted Paul. Paul, you can live in my house. 
I'll feed you, I'll take care of you, but not only you, Paul, I'm going to host the whole church. He was another guy who opened up his home for the church to meet there and have fellowship there and church services there. Uh, and it's just a wonderful thing to do. Hospitality uh, is a great thing. Opening up your home for people is a wonderful way to show love. We see that with this gentleman. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Quartus, a brother. Erastus is obviously a prominent man there in Corinth. He's the treasurer of the whole city. Uh, and so once again, we see another wealthy, prominent man who is a Gentile who became a believer in Christ and you know stuck with that job and that role and hopefully influenced many people for Christ in that. Uh, and Quartus here, the, the word actually means for... And interesting, as I was studying this, it was a common name for slaves because oftentimes as you became a slave, they would just take your birth given name and you wouldn't be called that anymore and you were just called a number. Uh, and, you know, they just kind of devalued you. You're, you're not a person, you're a slave and you're just going to be called four. Uh, and that was this guy's name. He was just four because he was just a number. He was a slave most likely. But as we noted before, you know, we have the wealthy witch. You know, here's the treasurer serving aside, alongside the slave. Because in Christ, we're equal. We're all valuable. We all can do wonderful things for him. And so Paul understood that. And he had a lot of people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, serving with him to see the Lord do great things. And he ends the letter with one final word of encouragement. Verses 25 through 27 says this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone, wise, be glory through Christ Jesus forever. Amen. This letter has had a lot of challenges, a lot of great doctrine to understand, a lot of practical application, a lot of relationships to put this doctrine into practice. And as you read this letter, you might feel a little overwhelmed. We've studied through it for a while now. We now come to the end. And maybe there's a part of you who thinks, man, I can't do this. I mean, just these relationships and the challenges there, how do I put this into practice? And we need to realize, and I've said it many times and I'll end with it, Paul ends with it, realize it isn't in your strength. It isn't, okay, I wake up and I'm going to muster up enough strength to put this into practice today and to accomplish what this letter is telling me to do. No, we need to realize it's the work of God. And I love what's told here that Paul brings it back to ultimately God is going to establish you. That he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. And this is the thing that we need to hold on to, to come back to. God's the establisher. God's the one who's going to work. God's the one who's going to change us. God's the one who's going to give us the strength needed through the power of the Spirit that indwells us to do what He's called us to do, to do what this letter challenges us to do. And it's such a great conclusion. And He's going to do it according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to what Jesus has done by dying on the cross for our sins. Hey, this is why it's possible. The reason that we can do anything is because we've placed our faith in Jesus and now His Spirit dwells within us, empowering us to live for the Lord. And so I want to encourage you. You can do it. What this letter says and all the things that we've been looking at for many, many weeks, this is something that God desires of us, but something that also we can accomplish through His power, through His strength, if we'll depend upon Him, if we'll rely upon Him. 
We can have the impact. All these names that you saw in this chapter, those would be names like yourself, like myself. We could be those who labor for the Lord. We could be those that are trustworthy servants. We could be those that God is using in our homes, in our workplace, at school, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that God wants to use us where we're at. And he says, hey, I've given you my spirit. I want to empower you and use you like I've done with so many people through the centuries. Realize it's possible. Realize God has given you all you need for it to happen. But he's the one who establishes And we need to trust Him. To God alone, who is wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. He's the wise one who came up with a plan that none of us would have thought. I'm going to sacrifice my own son. I'm going to give him up for the sins of the world. I'm going to pour judgment and wrath upon him so that those who accept him can escape that. He is the wise one who deserves all the glory. Let's pray.